Thank you for joining us for the Elevation Podcast Series, presented by the Colorado PGA. My name is Holly Champion, and I'm the Colorado Section's Education Director. What a year it's been. We began our podcast journey with the goal of publishing six episodes in 2020. After realizing the value of continued digital connection this year, we will be closing out 2020 with this, our 14th episode. Today, we will be elevating our knowledge of the USGA's adaptive golf provisions. Having been familiar with the USGA's adaptive rules of golf for golfers with disabilities, I wanted to explore them with the experts. I contacted the USGA's main rules department and was introduced to our two guests. Our first is Craig Winter, Senior Director of Rules of Golf and Amateur Status for the United States Golf Association. Craig was hired by the USGA in May of 2013. He sits on both the USGA and Joint Committees for the Rules of Golf and Rules of Amateur Status. Prior to joining the USGA, Craig served the Oregon Golf Association as the Director of Rules Education and the Director of Oregon Junior Golf. Our second guest is Adam Miller, director of the USGA's Green Section Education. Miller joined the Green Section's Northeast region as an agronomist in 2008, conducting course consulting service visits at golf courses in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Ontario. Now as the director of the Green Section Education, Adam guides education and outreach materials related to golf course management. I'm excited to have Craig and Adam joining us this week. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Craig Winter, Adam Miller, thank you both for joining me for this episode of the Elevation Podcast series hosted by the Colorado PGA. We're going to chat about adaptive golf and how the USGA uses their Uh, adaptive golf specific rules to help um, golfers with disabilities and facilities be a little bit more welcoming to those people. So um, Craig, we'll start with you. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. Sure, Holly. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for having uh, us on the show today. I I started in golf uh, pretty late in life uh, as my 21st uh, Christmas holiday and uh, was taken to it right away and kind of quickly found that I wanted to be around it. So uh, that was Oregon for me. Uh, I started working for the Oregon Golf Association through a uh, USGA Boatwright uh, internship and uh, very quickly fell in love with junior golf, uh, the energy around it, and also with the rules of golf. And ultimately, the, it was the rules that found my way to the USGA. Uh, that was in 2013. And uh, currently, uh, I lead the rules team and you know the, the rules review process to modernize the rules. Uh, I was uh, a really big part of that. That's actually why I came on with the USGA. And uh, today, uh, you know, we we obviously have the rules of golf. Uh, just trying to make sure that uh, we did everything right. We checked the right boxes with the modernization code. And as part of that, and specifically to this uh, to this podcast, is uh, whether or not the modified rules for players with disabilities are still serving their purpose. And we are actively uh, really kind of reviewing those on a holistic level as well. So it's a it's a timely opportunity to have a conversation with you, and we can speak to some of the things that we're questioning ourselves because we spent a lot of last year out and about in the industry at a lot of different golf tournaments for uh, players with disabilities. Uh, and uh, we saw some things that we felt we needed to take back to our committee to, to really raise those questions. So uh, USGA, 
lead the rules team. And uh, this is a really special area of interest for us, especially with our, uh, our national championship about to go online here, uh, hopefully next year. Fantastic. I'm glad that's definitely not something that uh, would kind of, we wrote it once, it's going to go to the wayside. Um, being able to actively review that and, and keep it relevant, I think is a really great thing, um, you know, to continue to, to make golf welcoming to those populations. So I, I appreciate that. Um, Adam, tell me kind of same question, a little bit about yourself and some of your background. Sure. Thanks, uh, Holly, for having me on. Um, so my background is a little different than than uh, Craig's. Uh, I really I grew up, started playing golf around the age of 10, um, really not knowing much about it, knowing in my family golfed um, and the uh, the entertaining side of my first time playing. I actually wore like soccer cleats uh, to play. Um <laughs> Cause I, I thought, you know, okay, you need, need some golf, golf cleats to play. Uh, so the irony of that is, as I got more into golf, uh, I started working on the maintenance staff at my local golf course. Uh, so, and it was the same golf course that I first started to play at with those soccer cleats. So I kind of realized, okay, that was definitely not the right thing to do, you know, just from, you know, the damage that I could have done on the course. Um, and so my background has sort of, continued along those lines of golf course maintenance, uh, working on golf courses uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin. I grew up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, uh, and that led me actually to get a uh, bachelor's degree and then eventually a master's degree in agronomy and turfgrass management. Uh, And through that experience, uh, that's how I got connected with the USGA through our green section, uh, which really uh, supports golf course uh, maintenance, looking at ways to develop innovative tools and solutions uh, that uh, golf courses are facing when it when it comes to maintenance and operations. Uh, so that's really my background. Some some neat connections with uh, how the green section fits in with uh, adaptive golf. Um, we've we funded in with the our department funds turf turfgrass and environmental research, uh, and we funded a fair amount of research looking at. Uh, the potential turf impacts of different types of mobility equipment, um, golf carts, golf shoe, just players walking, uh, that type of thing. So um, along those same lines, we've we've sort of published that information in our magazine and communicated that out through our course consulting service, which uh, our agronomists visit um, hundreds of golf courses every year. Uh, so it's uh, it's a little bit of a different background, certainly not the rules background that Craig has, but um, from a, a, a traffic standpoint, you know, that's where there's a lot of questions oftentimes when it comes to accessibility and, and mobility scooters. Definitely. And I, I'll put a pin in that right now is something that I've seen a lot of different places and had a couple conversations with people that uh, both disabled and able-bodied looking at, hey, can I get everywhere on a golf course? You know, and that's not just the golf professional or the staff's perspective. That's from the maintenance crew. That's from the developer. That's from, you know, even the course architect, making sure that that things are accessible. So I can appreciate it from that standpoint as well. Um, so just kind of starting with um, the rules here, we'll, we'll dive in with those first. Um, when were they adapted and adopted? And how did that process start? Um, obviously, the USGA is a major, um, major body in sports, major body in golf specifically, and every sport is really trying to be welcoming to everybody. You know, making sure that um, it's a game for everybody to be able to play, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. And so, 
uh, Craig, maybe talk a little bit about how those were developed when they were developed um, and how you got to where you are. Sure. So uh, I, this story really can't be told with about with the uh, absence of our, our former president, Trey Holland, Dr. Trey Holland out of Indiana. Uh, he, he's been involved with the Special Olympics uh, for, for some time, even well before this this effort that he led. Uh, he was our rules of golf chairman back in the early 90s, uh, assumed presidency late 90s. And in in 96 was when they were introduced, but that process for him started a bit before that, where there was clearly a need to modify the rules. You just, you just can't have the, the traditional at that time, 34 rules and, and consider them uh, working for, for an audience that frankly needs some modifications to be able to play this great game. And so uh, they were introduced in 96 through, through his, uh, through his efforts. And uh, there hasn't been that many changes um, that, that effort was uh, very closely aligned with what the special Olympics at that time was doing. Now there, there is, um, you know, one thing that's quite a bit different in this sport than in others, there's there's really one set of rules that governs golf, and and we jointly govern the rules with uh, with the RNA for the sport worldwide. And uh, the modified rules were a really important addition to that, to the point that you made to be inclusive. Now there's the estimates that uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be aware of. There, there's you know roughly 50 million plus disabled golfers in our country. Um, I'm sorry, 50 million disabled individuals in our country. Yeah, that's 20% or so of the population. And so for golf to be inclusive, we really needed a way to make sure that they could play under the rules of golf, especially when you think about competition. So 96 is when that started. Uh, I mentioned the modernization initiative that uh, rolled out new rules in 2019. At that time, uh, there wasn't uh, a, a deep dive into the modified rules to see if they needed to be modernized too. It was mostly about language updates. And so when I spoke to the, the conversation in the introduction that we're currently looking at how might the modified rules need a significant update. And that's not something that we can really do around our rules of golf committee table. We need to be out in the field. And so that was a lot of last year for us. We intended to do that again this year. Obviously, circumstances have changed a bit, but uh, that effort is underway. And it'll be neat to see where that ultimately ends up by watching what's happening and seeing, frankly, what's not working. There's even some conversation for us if the purpose of the modified rules itself is right. Are, are we are we creating them for the right purpose or should we should we pivot a little bit? So I'm happy to talk about that more as we kind of move through the conversation. But uh, again, this all started with Trey Holland's great work and uh, continues to this day to be able to allow individuals that need some uh, some modifications to be able to play the game and to compete with others that uh, like to as well. That's a great history. Thank you for that. Um, I didn't realize they had been uh, introduced in the 90s. I thought that they were a little bit newer than that. So that's great to know that that resource has been there, um, been there for a while. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about competition and making sure that the purpose is correct. Um, you know, in my experience, in very very small experience of using them for a member membership in the past, um, you know, we use them to help. A couple of members participate in things like local leagues. You know, they were able to take a copy of those rules with them, um, make sure that they could do things that their body would allow them to do on the golf course, make sure that they had access and things like that. Um, so obviously they're great for competition. Can you speak a little bit about that um, in how, you know, other competitions around the country have used them and how might that look moving forward? 
Sure, Holly. It, it is um, it is interesting to get calls. You know, we have an uh, an open inquiry line, and it might just be either a golfer that has a disability or uh, a tournament administrator that calls and says, "Hey, how can I?" how can I accommodate this person? And, you know, the rules are available. They're publicly available. They're on our website. They're in our official guide. Um, they're in effect, what they are is their local rules. Uh, they're, they're a little different though than most local rules that golfers are familiar with. You know, you might have a, a local rule that allows you to use a dropping zone for a penalty area. If you play golf, you've probably seen something like that. These are somewhat different because they're a local rule that a, a committee puts into play place and what it does is it allows only those individuals that have that disability that needs that modification to be able to use it. And, and so that, that's what's quite unique about these, these particular rules. We've used these even at U.S. Open qualifying events when individuals have needed them. So it's not that this is a, um, a set of rules that, that committees should shy away from, that their intent and their purpose, as I, as I kind of spoke to before, it's trying to create modifications to the rules, these local rules that allow someone who has a particular disability to be able to play on a level with those that are able-bodied. And, and it's that, that purpose that um, ha has underlied these rules since the, you know, the 90s when they were introduced, and it continues to carry us forward. So you can play with your friends that have disabilities, and you can be comfortable that using these modified rules doesn't actually give them an advantage. It's, it's a, a mechanism to allow them to play the game against you, if you'd like to, or against other players with disabilities. So um, that purpose in and of itself is, is still true today, but it doesn't work for all competition. And I think that's that's the area that we're continuing to look into, because when you think about the way the rules are put together, there are some particular elements, especially with golfers that have disabilities that uh, require them to use a mobility device, that if it's not the right golf course, because this really fits into the ADA side of things and some of the, the areas that, that Adam can speak more closely to, you might have a bunker that's particularly deep where you can't even get into it if you happen to not have the ability to walk in. Uh, and you might have situations that are frankly dangerous to even be able to play you know, a steep slope or, or something like a cliff that's nearby where most golfers would be able to hit that shot just fine. And someone that isn't able to get there is, is forced to take penalty strokes. And so that starts to call into question whether or not this should be a particular set of modified rules for their purpose as they were designed for an able-bodied golfer to be able to play with someone with a disability, or should we have even a smaller, more, more specific set to be able to allow, for example, seated golfers to play against seated golfers so they can uh, have a little bit more comfortable competition when one hits into a bunker, they're, they're effectively required to take penalty strokes. So uh, those are the things, some of the things that we're questioning uh, as we are today. But uh, ultimately, they're, they're not something that, I mean, anybody that calls us, we encourage them, put them into play if, if you have a, a golfer that fits into one of the five categories, because they're not intended to give an advantage. They're actually intended quite the opposite to allow for a level playing field. You bring up a really good point with, with golf being kind of a unique sport and, you know, looking at the arena that we play on, you know, every golf course is different and every golfer with disabilities are different. So you're, you're governing something that's never going to be consistent. And I think that's, that definitely speaks to the challenge, but I, I can definitely appreciate as well, um, just leveling the playing field, like you said, um, making sure that it, just kind of like the handicap system does is it makes it so that it's so much fun 
for everybody to be able to play against anybody. And I think that's really important. Um, and Adam, I think you can probably speak to, you know, how this applies to just like, you know, every golf course is so different, you know, um, Craig, you mentioned different bunkers being there, cliffs being there. We don't have a ton of cliffs here on the front range, but, uh, we do have some up in the mountains that can be a little treacherous and that's, that's always fun to look at. But, um, you know, how, how have from the maintenance standpoint and from the architect standpoint, how have, um, the, U- the USGA's rules come into play in some of the design elements? Can you speak to some of that? Sure. Yeah. It, you know, co- competition aside, um, so much of it is, is simply just access, um, how, however you choose to, to play the game. So, uh, that's something that, um, the ASGCA, the, the architects uh, society, uh, is very, very focused on. Um, and, and it's really at the forefront of, of their designs. Um, but there's a lot of courses that were built, um, you know, years and, and decades ago that, that just don't have the accessibility of, of certain tees or certain bunkers or, or even brand new courses that that's just part of their design. But it's definitely something that a lot of facilities are focusing on or have focused on is to make sure that that um, everyone can get, you know, as close to every part of the golf course as possible. Um, obviously, bunkers are going to be the, the the one exception there, where in some cases there's just not uh, an easy way to, to make them accessible. Uh, but that that's really something that I see as a good opportunity um, for, for so many courses is to make sure they're they're accessible and making it aware uh, to those golfers as to which is the best tee for you to play from an accessibility standpoint. Um, you know, is there desired routing because of a curbing system or whatever? And, and is it mapped so so players can easily navigate through the course and, and enjoy around with, um, you know, with their with their friends? Um, to me, that that's really a, a good opportunity for, for courses to, you know, sort of focus a little bit more on on you know, those golfers that, that have those challenges uh, to make sure that they're presenting, you know, an equally enjoyable golf experience for them as, as they would for able-bodied uh, players. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. Um, and so one question that I kind of just thought of with some of this is you, you talk about ADA accessibility with the golf course and how everything's built. You know, can you drive into a corner of the bunker to be able to reach the rest of it? Um, can you get up on a green without having to, you know, navigate and circumvent a lot of different obstacles and things like that for mobility? Um, what is really the difference, I guess, and this is something that I frankly have no clue on. Um, what's the difference between making a golf course ADA accessible versus something that's an integral part of the golf course? Cause you see some, some courses that have those really deep pot bunkers, you know, we try to make everything as accessible as possible, but when is it, you know, when does, where, where's the, where's the line, I guess is, yep. We need those pot bunkers because that's an integral part of the golf course. That's the design. That's the feature that we're looking for but we also want to make it accessible. Can you speak to a little bit of the difference there? Sure. I can try. That's a, that's definitely an an architect, um, you know, area, but what I'll say, and this is something that a lot of architects are focused on. It's, it's not only people that, um, you know, maybe, you know, have a disability, but whether it's, it's someone who just has a general time, you know, harder time with walking uh, that maybe isn't, isn't, 
technically classified as someone who has a disability is to make sure that they have, you know, opportunities for those folks to get into to certain bunkers. Um, to, to me, it, it's definitely a gray area um, because having, you know, a deep, intricate bunker is, is sort of part of a lot of the, uh, the classic architecture of, you know, the 20s and 30s and, and even more so with some of the, you know, Pete Dye type design courses with, with pretty intricate designs. Um, you know, I think there, there definitely needs to be a line, um, but it's a, it's a very gray area. Uh, so what I'm seeing with courses that are undergoing, you know, renovations for bunkers in particular, um, a lot of it is uh, to help ease maintenance, especially right now in, in the, the pandemic that we're at, where many courses are struggling with, um, you know, having enough maintenance staff um, to be able to take care of the golf course. Uh, and so when you're focusing on easing maintenance, a lot of times that, that does mean softening slopes subtly here or there that should hopefully allow for more accessibility. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard line because from an architecture standpoint, there is a lot of visual, you know, intimidation that, that is part of the challenge. And, you know, I think architects have, have a hard time balancing that because it's, it could be just two able-bodied people that, you know, their skill sets are so different that, how do you design a bunker that, that sort of meets both of those those players, let alone someone with a disability? For sure. I mean, we've seen a lot of things in the media lately about course, courses, you know, building extra tee boxes to add yardage and equipment's getting better and better. Golf balls are getting better and better. So players are getting better and better and making the fee, you know, the playing field that much more challenging. I think that's really neat for, you know, watching it on, on TV and seeing guys go super low, seeing him hit the ball 350 yards. Um, I think all of that is really neat, but where does that leave kind of the rest of the 99% of golfers who are like, I just want to go play. I don't hit the ball 350 yards, um, you know, making the golf course that much harder, but still leaving it accessible to people able-bodied or not. Um, you know, making sure that everybody can still play the game on the same, on the same playing field, you know, tee boxes help making sure that the accessibility helps and things like that. But I think keeping it in perspective of who all plays the game, it's such a completely different experience for so many different people, I think is really, really important there. Yeah, so definitely. We, That's a real, real quick. Uh, yeah. Holly, that was a, a big finding of our distance insights project was, you know, obviously there there's, there's back tees and, and players play those tees. Um, but it was also pretty glaringly obvious that uh, there's a lot of courses that don't have enough forward or their forward tees aren't forward enough um, to present sort of an equal golf experience for players with slower swing speeds. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of courses that are doing renovations and, and they might add a back tee, but we're seeing more forward tees probably being built than, than anything over the recent you know past couple of years. I think that's fantastic. I would wholeheartedly agree being from a little bit of a green grass background myself is constantly telling my members to play forward, play it forward, tee it forward. You know, that, that movement that came out, I think was fantastic. And there's so many people that need to, you know, take ego out of the tee box and, and things like that. But that's a completely different conversation. <laughs> um, but no, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I guess, anytime that the media gets excited and gets pulled into some of that, they'll 
really focus on the back tees and making it harder. But that's really good to know that there's a lot of facilities out there that are taking more of a focus on making it easier, making it more adaptable to anybody and everybody who wants to come out. So that's, I think that's really, really great. Um, Adam, you also talked a little bit about uh, the, from the equipment side. So um, mobility tools, different kinds of adaptive equipment that people are using and are being developed. Um, in our Colorado PGA Hope program, we've got a few participants that have used things like solo riders. Um, seen those in action, what a cool piece of equipment and a really, really great asset for, for those people to be able to um, you know, get out on the golf course and have that experience. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and how, um, what the USGA is basically doing to make sure that those pieces of equipment are able to be used a little bit more and more? Mm, Sure. We, we've done, and it was probably right around the same, same time that uh, Craig mentioned in 96, when the, uh, the rules came out, um, we, we, we did a number of research projects. We funded those at different turfgrass universities across the country. And we, we found pretty much what we had anticipated uh, that the, the most potential for damage that you can have with, with any piece of equipment um, is when the tires are fairly narrow and they're rigid. And then finally, when the course has got, you know, higher soil moisture than what would be desirable. Um, so all types of, maintenance equipment, golf carts, even golfer foot traffic can cause traffic stress. Um, and mobility scooters, um, you know, different types of accessible equipment all can, can do that. Um, but what we have found is that generally as you're maintaining the course drier, um, and then finally, as the equipment has wider tires, um, that have, you know, a little more give to them, the, the, the damage really is negligible. Um, and not any different than what you would see with a regular golf cart. Um, and certainly not any different than what, you know, ride on greens mowers um, or ride on sprayers would, would do to a green. Um, so maintaining the, the course is, is, you know, firm and dry will obviously minimize that damage. And that's what the research sort of showed. Um, and, and it's not that that was fairly intuitive. We kind of anticipated that um, already, but that's not always possible. Um, mother nature plays a role and, and that's kind of a common phrase that we we hear with the USGA is mother nature has a seat at the table. Um, and so because of that, there's, there's going to be various times when any type of um, ride on equipment, you know, could cause damage to the course. Um, but I, I feel like, again, because golf carts are so readily used already um, that it, it's manageable damage, assuming that there are, you know, appropriate signs out there um, or, you know, when it comes to certain mobility scooters, yeah, you, you, there may be a time if the greens are completely saturated and soggy that the, the, the course may be closed to, to those folks, um, which wouldn't be uh, obviously a good thing. But there's just a time when golf carts have to be taken off of the, the course as well. So um, from that from that standpoint, um, you know, there, there's definitely some damage potential, but that's pretty consistent with, with all types of, of ride on equipment that's out there. It's really good to hear that those are a little bit less of a factor when it comes to damage. Um, superintendents and golf course ownership and architects can take a little bit of confidence and solace in the fact that that's not what's really going to tear up your green. 
you know, it's it's a little bit more of Mother Nature's hand, but those things are going to do less damage than, like you said, some of your regularly scheduled maintenance practices that are much heavier equipment, much bigger tires, um, different things like that. So that's that's really great to hear as well, and um, fascinating that there's research behind that. I think that's a really great thing that you guys are taking the time and the effort um, to make sure that those are are backed by fact and um, a lot of really good resources there. So. Um, kind of changing gears just a little bit. So both of you have kind of talked from two different angles on how the adaptive rules and golfers with disabilities can use those to their, um, to their advantage to be able to just play the game. Kind of a question for both of you. If you were having a conversation with facilities, how can you encourage them to use these adaptive rules to become more welcoming in general to golfers with disabilities? Um, Craig, we'll start with you. Well, I, I think my uh, my conversation would start with uh, host a golf tournament with golfers that happen to need these rules. Uh, and I say that because the organizations that we worked with closely last year, and we, we went to dozens of events just to shadow. And the, the courses that I spoke with uh, – some of them were hosting for the first time. Some of them were hosting for you know dozens of years in a row, and it was it was always that it, it's a great experience for them. It opens their eyes. It is a it's a, a side of golf that unfortunately not a lot of people know about, and it's a really neat thing. It's it's completely inspiring to see the types of golfers that can can move the ball that can play just as well as you and I. And it's not, you know, this, this, uh, this stigma that I think is out there, you know, Adam spoke to it Well, they're going to rip up our greens because they have to drive a cart on them. Uh, you know, if a, if a golf course is prepared correctly, that's not what happens. And, and, and I think even it just, as much as just do it, just take a chance, host an event, and it will open your eyes to how neat, how, how neat it is to, to be open and accessible to all golfers that want to play the game. Uh, you know, it's there, there's, there's a lot of stigmas out there, the damage to the greens, it takes too long. You know, those types of things will surprise people that there is an entire, entirely different audience that you're not aware of that plays this game that loves it just as much as you and I, that just doesn't have an opportunity to play it. And so that, that kind of take a chance, just host an event and it will, it will, most likely change the way you think about a very important demographic in the golfing community. I mean, most golf courses just want people to play, right? They, they want people to be playing their golf course. And, and by it's not necessarily being exclusionary, but not even being aware to market to this audience. Um, they're missing out on, on potential rounds and, and a, a very inspiring form of this game. What a great concept. Just do it. Just host an event. Just invite people. I love that. Um, Adam, anything to add there? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing that would be an eye-opener, aside from hosting the event, um, would be for the, the key course officials, the, the decision makers at, at that property, the superintendent, you know, the owner, general managers, whomever, a golf professional, um, would be to play around uh, using a, a mobility scooter or something along those lines so they could really experience the course from that perspective. And, and A, you're going to learn, you know, those stigmas are not accurate in terms of the greens could get damaged or things like that. Um, that's the biggest eye-opener for a lot of superintendents is 
they, they, they always are going to get a little nervous because the greens are the most important part of the course. And when they're not in control of driving a vehicle on the greens, that, that's going to make someone nervous. But as soon as they are able to drive up on their own greens with a, a mobility scooter, they're going to realize this is the exact same thing as a ride on, you know, greens mower that, that they use, you know, every day. Um, but it's also going to be eye-opening to sort of figure out, hey, we've got, you know, some areas of opportunity out on the golf course um, where we can make the, the course more accessible and, and just provide a better golf experience for this group of golfers. I think that's going to really help some folks kind of understand the opportunities that exist within their course. Um, obviously, there are, you know, what we talked about with accessibility is, is really important, and I don't think it's going to be a situation where – courses are going to start redoing all their bunkers. Um, but it's probably not an issue on, on all their bunkers. There may only be a handful um, that a course has that really aren't totally accessible. And so it's just going to be an eye opener to say, what, what can we do at our facility to, to make it a better golf experience um, for those players? I think that would really be, be helpful. Some of our agronomists had the opportunity to do this a few years ago. And I mean, it just had an absolute blast, learned a ton and, and really realize the importance of the, the small things that a golf course could do to improve the golf experience for, for this group of golfers. More great concepts. And I absolutely love that. Um, in some of our, our events here at the Colorado PGA, we've had, um, one of those solar riders come out and we'll have during our big invitational tournament to raise money for the hope program. Um, we'll have, everybody can hit a shot off of a solo rider just to see what it feels like to see, you know, how the, how that piece of equipment moves and helps you move and things like that. And, um, having been able to do that before, it's incredible to just experience what somebody else experiences. You know, the old adage of taking a walk in someone else's shoes, I think is a really great, you know, way to sum up what I think you talked about is just try it see what you can and can't do, what's difficult, what's easy. And that really helps you look at your facility that you could be at for decades in a new, in a new light. So I think that's fantastic as well. Um, in becoming a little bit more of a welcoming atmosphere to golfers with disabilities, golfers of all abilities, um, how can a facility and their management educate their able-bodied customers, their members, their employees, um, on how to use your resources for adaptive golfers to their advantage and to create that welcoming environment. Um, I know a lot of, you know, Craig, you talked about making sure that people are aware of that population, making sure that people are aware that some of these things can be easier or more difficult for, for people, depending on your abilities and your disabilities. How do you go about educating others using your resources? Um, Adam, we'll, we'll keep it with you for this one. Sure. Um, you know, one thing that that we've worked on in, in the green section, and we actually had plans to to do this until um, the, the pandemic hit, obviously, um, was uh, we were going to create uh, an educational video, sort of all about this subject to, to help sort of inform you know able-bodied players as to what's going on out there and, and dispel some of those some of those myths that that we'd already talked about. Um, so that's that's on our agenda for this fall, uh, assuming we get to go ahead to travel. Um, there's a, a number of specific courses that have been um, very, very intentional with their design and their maintenance uh, to make them accessible. And so we wanted to highlight that. 
Um, the, the second component is we've, we've written a few articles um, really all, all about this subject as to how to make a golf course um, you know, as, as accessible as possible. Um, so, you know, taking that article and, and sharing it with, uh, you know, the golfers at a particular facility, um, or even out through, um, in AGA, uh, would be, would be fantastic. Um, really on the ground, I, I've seen a number of courses, um, educate their players, um, about how they are managing, um, managing traffic. And, you know, a lot of courses will have sort of a two flag system for their carts, um, they'll have a, a designated flag for uh, players with disabilities. So people in the group behind or in the group in front, you know, don't start kind of thinking, well, what's going on? Why is that person driving up on a green or on a tee or, or whatever? So uh, those little types of things, you know, at the, at the ground level definitely seem to seem to help. But it's it's sometimes hard to educate players, especially right now when there's this minimal interaction as, as, uh, as possible at a lot of courses when it comes to, you know, that time to educate them. Great concept there with the double flag system. I think that's, that's really good. Most courses have a, you know, bring in your handicap placard from your car and you get a handicap flag and that can allow you to do certain things, but that also lets everybody else around you know that this is okay. I have permission. Um, I have a reason, different things like that. Cause it's, it's, educating your staff and your facility, but it's also educating the other people in the public around you saying, this is okay. This is a sport for everybody, um, which I think is a really good, good resource to use as well. So great points there. Um, Craig, anything to add there? Well, I, I think from a rules of golf perspective, um, there, there is a similar, uh, um, project in the works to actually educate on the modified rules through videos. We had intended to travel this year to actually educate the audiences that are running golf tournaments, the players that are, that are taking part in golf tournaments and the adapted rules. One, one thing that, uh, that, that I would say more than any, and this is pretty comfortable for me in in my shoes where I am is that we just haven't done enough in the past to be in this space. Uh, you know, it's, it's perhaps a a bit of an acknowledgement after we decided to to host a, a national championship, how important it is to us and how important it is to be part of this community. But there are so many organizations. We talk about golf being kind of this alphabet soup, you know, Holly, you with the PGA, us with the USGA, um, quite frankly, from from a, a perspective of education and how can facilities be more welcoming. I, right now, I would be more more comfortable saying individuals should actually reach out to one of the many organizations that have been doing this for decades. You know, there, there's a lot of different organizations that that are far more advanced than we are, frankly. Um, it, it's it's fairly easy for me to say that right now, because uh, if somebody said, how can I be more welcoming? It's, it's difficult for us because we frankly haven't, we haven't ramped up our resources yet. And, and uh, from a rules of golf perspective, it's fairly easy for me to say that we have modified rules, but there's a, so much more that goes into being welcoming to this community. And, and frankly, where I sit, I would be much more comfortable saying, reach out to the adaptive golf alliances, you know, the, the one arm golf association, the you know, U.S. Blind Golf Association, those organizations are, are really far more equipped because they know that audience, frankly, a lot better than we do. And, and that's part of why we've been trying to get out in the field 
to really learn. I mean, that's, that's the state that we're in right now. We, we learned a lot just from reaching out to those organize, organizations to say, are the modified rules working for you? Generally, they say, yeah, they're great. They, they do what we need to do. But when we got our rules minds out there to watch, we saw that some things weren't quite as good as we think they could be. And so we continue to work with those organizations because it's, it's, uh, it's a whole lot easier to have that, that uh, firsthand knowledge of, yeah, I think that would actually be better if we could do that, not what you have now for those rules. Um, so I would actually far more, I mean, our team does this quite a bit when we get phone calls about questions that are about the modified rules. We're, we're comfortable answering those, but when it gets beyond that, oftentimes it's, you know, if you're dealing with a one-armed golfer, there's a, there's an organization that, you know, that that's what they do. Uh, so that would be a really good organization to reach out to. And we provide that contact information on the regular. That's great to know. And does, does the USGA have a resource center that may, you know, compiles all of those organizations or contact information at all? Honestly, Holly, I don't know the answer to that. Um, that that's, that's something that we have in our rules team, just depending upon what the dis specific disability is. There's also an Adaptive Golf Alliance that is trying to kind of bring all of those organizations together and under one umbrella. And that's an organization that sometimes we reach out to if it's a panacea of different disabilities. Well, that's good to know. Um, no, that's, I was totally curious on that as well. I think, you know, back to kind of what we started the conversation about is there's so many different aspects to this. Um, you know, if there's other organizations that specialize, I think having a bank of knowledge, so to speak, would be really helpful. Um, but I've attended a couple of seminars um, for the Adaptive Golf Alliance around like the PGA show and things like that. And they're doing a lot of really neat stuff to be able to welcome more and more people and make it, you know, for lack of a better term, normalized around the sport, which I think is really good. So that's nice to know that you guys also uh, are in contact with them and, and would refer somebody to them if you don't have the answer. So um, really great use of resources there. Anything else that either of you would add to the conversation at this point? Um, anything that we haven't covered that you think is really pertinent? Holly, I'll, I'll just throw out that um, just these are some personal experiences that I've had. And one of the, the missions of the USGA, we, we, we want to host these national championships. And a large reason why we do that is they're so inspirational to those that have the opportunity to play. And when we announced our, our national championship for golfers with disabilities, uh, you know, I've, I've admitted on, on previous comments that that's part of why we have re-engaged so, um, so deliberately with this audience. Um, you know, it doesn't really speak to Adam's team's work, but from a rules, rules team perspective, we wanted to make sure that we could host a national championship. And if we're the committee at that championship, we needed to know more about how these rules were working in the field. They've been, they've been working, working um, for the last 20 years, but we haven't really been hands-on to see how that's happening. So when we went out, you know, we had championship staff, we had some championship administration staff, we had a lot of rules staff go out and just watch them in action. And some of the most impactful conversations that I had were, you know, you, you have a round of golf and you're in the bar afterwards and we're still working, but those players are enjoying just like any other golfer would after a tournament round. And the, the excitement from those that say they're going to go win the U.S. Open, it, it, it is it is such a neat thing to see and that that kind of coalescing moment that we've really never been able to engage this audience in the same way. We haven't 
we, we haven't been able to give this audience what so many other audiences have had. We have juniors, we have seniors, we have you know, open championships, but this is different. And it's, it's a very specific, important competition for an audience that loves golf, as I said before, just as much as we do. And, and it's provided that inspiration to that audience that now, you know, they're, they're playing and, and they, you know, there are, there are organizations that have national championships as well, but it's a bit different when, you know, sports governing body here in the U S that happens to have the U S open as will be, unveiling at winged foot this year it's it's going to be a championship that they can go and win as well and and it was i mean it hit me every single time i heard that it was wow yeah like i i i didn't appreciate it the way that i do now and and that's part of this this importance of we need to make sure that we provide what this community needs by giving a thorough review of the modified rules and we'll see what comes out the other side uh, our committee is really supportive of it obviously our leadership is supportive of it and the communities that we've we've reached out to are really excited that that we're we're, we're there we're present we've plugged in because frankly we weren't in the past Great point. And I think I can, I can definitely appreciate, you know, the realization of being able to um, interact with those, with those folks and, and hear their experiences. And that's kind of gives me goosebumps to think that somebody would say, heck yeah, I'm going to go win a U.S. Open. That's awesome. I yeah, love that. It was, it was uh, put a smile on my face. Yeah, for sure. Heart skipped a beat. Yeah, I love it. Um, Adam, anything to add? No, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've covered everything from an, from an agronomic perspective. Um, you know, I will, I would share <clears throat> probably the, the same type of, um, comments as, as Craig though. And, uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, you know, the, the, the golf course, as long as it's going to be maintained at a certain level, it's going to tolerate all sorts of traffic out there. Um, and superintendents do a, a fantastic job of, of getting the grass to the point where it can tolerate that traffic, regardless of the types of conditions that, that are out there. And, and, and I know what it would mean from, you know, a personal standpoint if I was managing the golf course with the, the U.S. Open that, that Craig had mentioned and, you know, the, the, the excitement, I mean, that's how you, that's why you maintain the course so it can get played at the, at the highest level and being able to see, um, you know, that community be able to play at a U.S. Open level would be, would be awesome. Um, you know, so and there's no question that the, the golf course would be presented in, a, in an awesome fashion and, and, you know, test these players. Great point as well. I think from a, you you come you come at this subject from a I think a pretty unique perspective of golf course design and and accessibility and a f much more physical standpoint. So I think those are great points as well. All right. Well, thank you both, um, Adam Miller, Craig Winter from USGA for joining us for this episode of the Elevation Podcast Series to talk about adaptive golf. Really appreciate both of your time, and uh, thanks thanks again. Thank you, Holly. Yeah, thank you.